one further announcement. Every year at Labor Day, North Stonington Bible Church has a Bible conference over there. and We like to invite them to our special things and they invite us. So I just wanted to remind you that the speaker this year is Dennis Roxer, who is uh, involved in the teaching ministry at Duluth Bible Church. And I know Jay's always had some relationships with the folks there. The subject is going to be True Spirituality by Grace, covering Colossians 2 and 3. So that will be on Saturday, Sunday, and on Monday. I think it begins, the first session's 10.30 on Saturday, September the 4th. So we want to make sure we uh, know about that. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are indeed in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and ready to study God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for a confession of sin if necessary. In the privacy of your priesthood, all that is necessary is simply to acknowledge or admit our sins to God the Father because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for those sins. So it is not an issue of feeling sorry for the sins, some kind of emotional penance or bargaining with God or anything else. The price is paid in full, yet we know that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So the issue for the believer at all times is to make sure that he stays current, confesses sin, stays filled with the Holy Spirit so you can continue to advance in your spiritual life. So let's begin with a few moments of prayer before we get started. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the privilege we have to fellowship around Your Word, to study the life of Christ as uh, given to us in the Gospel of John, and to see these particular interchanges and exchanges He had with the Pharisees, and how He argued with them, and the things that we can learn in terms of our own witness and how to present the Gospel, especially when dealing with antagonistic audiences. Now, Father, as we study Your Word today, help us to understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we continue our study of Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees. This section of the Gospel of John began back at John chapter 5 and continues to the end of John 12. One confrontation after another And with each chapter, these confrontations intensify. We are reminded of the fact that when Jesus healed the uh, cripple at the pool of Bethesda, back at the beginning point of the second year of His ministry, John 5, at that point, the 
Pharisees determined that they were going to put him to death. You see, religious systems are always antagonistic to grace. They can never understand grace. And from that we see that no matter how religious the Pharisees were, no matter how intent they were on following the Old Testament, no matter how much they talked about God, they were antagonistic to God. They, were, they never understood the issues in the Old Testament. And this was exemplified by their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 8, things start getting really intense. In fact, if you look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees, He is just... Uh, I mean, the, the, the brass that He has to say the things that He says to the Pharisees is incredible. He, is, he just confronts them to their face and you can just feel their angry reaction intensify from verse to verse. Now the thing is, we lose sight of this because we're moving through all of these chapters. We can't cover everything at one time. So we have to keep going back, getting the big picture, read ourselves back into the scenario so that we don't lose sight of what's actually transpiring here. Last time we started in verse 31. And we saw there that after Jesus had instructed them, remember this is the same morning back in John 8, this is early in the morning, Jesus went to the temple. It was at the temple that the Pharisees, because of their great concern for the law, and I'm using sarcasm, and this is the whole point in John, is he uses that episode to show that they... They were hypocrites. They had no true understanding or concern for the law. They're just out to, to get Jesus. And they had set up this poor woman who was taken in adultery. She's obviously guilty. But they are using it as a way to get to Jesus. And there's the episode with the woman taken in adultery in the first 12 or 13 verses. And then Jesus begins to teach after that, developing the theme that He is the light of the world in verse 12. There is continued continued interchange, Jesus and then the Pharisees, and this bantering back and forth down through verse 29. And as Jesus continues His teaching, more and more people are coming to the realization that He is who He claims to be, and that is the Messiah. Why is this Gospel written? It's written so that we can know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Christos is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised Savior of God. Salvation in every era is the same, although dispensations shift. Salvation is always the same. People think that in the Old Testament, sometimes, that, uh, that they were saved by the law, and they weren't. The law was not given to bring people to salvation. The law was given to demonstrate, well, first of all, it was the, um, the code, the law code for Israel. But its spiritual import was to show that man was unable to fulfill the law and that all were under sin and in need of a Savior. And in the Old Testament, there was the promise of God and salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, Christ being taken as the Messiah and it is the anticipated fulfillment of that promise. So if you were in the Old Testament, you were saved by faith in Christ, but it's an anticipation In the New Testament, since the cross, we are saved by looking back and believing that Christ did indeed complete the payment for our sins on the cross. And during the period of the Incarnation, Jesus is presenting Himself to Israel as the Messiah. 
And here we see the rejection by the religious leaders of those messianic claims. But there were those who believed. Verse 30, as Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. And we saw last time that this is the technical phraseology and terminology that John uses throughout the Gospel of those who are saved. That there's no such thing as a non-saving faith in Jesus. The issue is, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John uses this phrase again and again. The verb for believe, pistuo, and the preposition, ace. This indicates the object of faith. And we're to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that if you believe this, you're saved. And that if there's no such thing as somebody who believes Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and it's a non-saving faith. And, and you hear people now and then try to take this position, but it's clear if the words of Scripture mean anything, then this is all that is required for salvation. What else is there? So at verse 30, there are many who come to trust Christ as Savior, And then Jesus begins to address them in 31 and 32 to give them spiritual life doctrine that if you abide in the Word, then you are truly disciples. And we saw that disciples is not a synonym for believer, but is really a term for those believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity. And that comes through the knowledge of God's Word. Verse 32, And you shall know the truth. And the truth, that is doctrine contained in the Word of God, the truth shall make you free. And then, of course, the Jews immediately react to that in arrogance and deceit, and they attempt to argue that they have always been free. Now, we get an example of their arrogance from the Mishnah. This was the collection of rabbinical teachings that is at the core of Judaism. And in Tractate Shabbat, we find a fundamental principle for the Jews. Quote, All Israel are the children of kings, and, in, and, um, and then this is further developed in Baba Metziah, which is a tractate in the Talmud. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not even Solomon's feast could be too good for them. So there was this underlying thought in Judaism that just because they were physical descendants of Abraham, all Israel are kings. And because they are descendants of Abraham and God made a covenant with them, that by their very physical descent, they are superior to every other human being, and they will automatically go to heaven simply because they are descendants of Abraham. And so there's this arrogance and their conceit, but, but they claim, in verse 33, we're Abraham's offspring and we've never been enslaved to anyone. And this is just a denial. They're living at a very core level of denial. Remember, denial is part of arrogance. You, you distort reality, you're living in self-deception, and they claim to never, never have been enslaved, and yet they were enslaved when the Babylonian Empire overran the nation. They were enslaved later when the Greek Empire broke up under the Seleucids, and then there was the Maccabean Revolt. Now they're enslaved to Rome, and they're just ignoring all of that and trying to claim that, they're, that just because they're Jews that they're, that they're free. So the Lord begins to take apart their argument. And first he says that everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. He says, I'm not talking about political freedom. I'm not talking about social freedom. I'm talking about 
spiritual freedom. And if you commit sin, then you are the slave of, of sin. And as such, you, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does. You have to make a change. There has to be a change from being a slave of sin to being a son of God. It takes us back to John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. And he says in verse 36, he gives them a, an invitation to salvation. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus recognized, he granted their argument, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but he's saying that's not enough. You have to be a spiritual descendant. You have to follow Abraham in his example of faith. And they, they reject that. Their emphasis is just on physical descent. And so Jesus says, if you were truly the spiritual seed of Abraham then you would accept me and you would do the deeds of Abraham. But you want to murder me. You want to destroy me. You want to take my life. So obviously you're not doing the deeds of Abraham. So Abraham cannot be your father. Now there's a real hint there of what he's getting ready to say that is a slap in the face to these Jews. So now they're going to counter his argument by saying that, that okay, our spiritual descent is from God. And even and you can't argue about our physical descent from Abraham. And this is the point in, uh, that they make down in verse 40 and 41. And Jesus counters that by saying, No, it's evident from your actions that you are of your father the devil. And you are doing his deeds. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Verse 44, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. And this is why you are rejecting me. Now, that's where we stopped last time. Jesus calls the Pharisees children of the devil. You see, that's true for every single human being. When we are born, we are born in the kingdom of Satan, the Scripture says. We are not born. No human being, apart from salvation, is a child of God. This is the lie of of religious liberalism, that God is the Father of everybody. But the Scriptures never call God the Father of mankind in that sense of being the Creator. The Scripture only calls God the Father of mankind, of a human being, if that person has trusted Christ as their Savior. So Jesus charges them with being of their father, the devil, and they immediately react. Now, they have tried to argue that they are the physical descendants of Abraham, so therefore they're worthy of all the benefits and blessings due to Abraham. And, God, and uh, the Lord has shot down that argument. Then they tried to claim that they were doing the deeds of God, and God was indeed their father. We were, in verse 41, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus has shot that down by showing that they are, by the works, by the evidence of their life, they're doing the works of of their father, the devil. And so they respond in a very childish manner in verse 48. You're going to say that we're born, we're, our father's the devil, so's yours. Look at what they say. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They're going to just get involved in name calling now. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Look at verse 49. How does Jesus respond to their contention that he has a demon? He says, I do not have a demon, 
but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Now, they, it looks at first glance in the English that they charge him with two things. They say he's a Samaritan and that he has a demon. But he only seems to answer the second of the charges. Why? Well, here we have to do a little background investigation into uh, Jewish-Samaritan relationships. We also have to remember some things that have already gone on in the text. First of all, back in John 7:52, the Pharisees had claimed that he could not be the Messiah because he was a Galilean. Why, if just the day before, because that's when that took place, if the day before they said you're a Galilean, why would they call him a Samaritan now? They wouldn't. What I'm going to argue is Samaritan is a bad translation. They knew he was from the north. They were ignorant of his birth in Bethlehem, and they were just claiming that, well, you're from Galilee, you can't fit the Messianic credentials. Secondly, Jesus had not come to Jerusalem through Samaria or from Samaria, so they couldn't be in reference to that, so it must mean something else. Some have suggested that the term was an idiom for someone who was either an enemy of Israel's, or that it referred to somebody who was a lawbreaker, or to someone who was spiritually unclean. But that's not the answer. We have to dig a little deeper into Judaism's angelology. In Judaism, they had developed their own view of the angels and demons that was beyond what was in the Old Testament Scripture. Now, if we look at the way language was used then, if they were accusing Jesus of being a Samaritan, they would have accused Him, first of all, they would have used this word. They would have called him a Kuthite. Looks like this in the, um, in the Hebrew or Aramaic. And it refers to the descendants who lived in the land of Kuth. Now, this was a, a region to the east of Israel. And when the, uh, when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., as part of their typical process of dealing with native peoples, they moved a lot of Jews out of, out of the northern kingdom and they brought gen, various Gentile people in and resettled them in Israel to mix up the bloodline so that they would prevent possible revolts in the future. That's why Samaritans were a mixed race. They were partially Jewish, but there was a, lot of, a, mix, uh, there was a large mixture of Gentile blood in there. And part of these people came from the land of Cuth. So this became a term for, for Samaritans, a reference to their ancient ancestors. It was also a term that became an idiom for heretic. But they don't use that terminology here. The word that is used in the Greek can very easily be a, related to this word, in the uh, Hebrew, Shamroni. S-H-O-M-R-O-N-I. There's an etymological connection. And the name Shamron was a name that was assigned to the highest prince of the demons, second only to Satan. He also went by the name Ashmedai. Now, this is all according to the mystical angelology of Judaism. This is not 
a, a biblical terminology whatsoever. And according to the mystical views of, of the Jews, Ashmedai or Shomron was second in command to Satan and was also, who was, Satan was also called uh, Samael. And in their somewhat mythological construction of, of demonology, Samael had a son, Ashmedai or Shomron. So when the Jews come along here and say, do we not correctly say that you are, they're saying you are a Shomron. You are Shomron and have a demon. What they are saying to Jesus is they're saying you are a child of Satan and you possess a demon. It's one charge. They're not calling him a Samaritan. They're calling, they're, they're saying he's, a, he's satanic, he's demon possessed. It's the same charge that you have in Matthew chapter 12 after he cast out a demon and they claimed that he was casting out the demons by the power of Beelzebul. This is a major shift that takes place in all the Gospels and the ministry of Christ from its inception with the inauguration with the baptism of John the Baptist through the crucifixion. There came a point when the Jewish religious leaders reject him and claim that his power is demonic and not from God. So they are accusing him of being demon-possessed. Now we need to stop here for a minute and spend a little time talking about this concept of demon possession. There is a tremendous amount of confusion abroad in the land today over demon possession. So we have to stop and go back and look at demon power and how this fits into Scripture and what the Bible teaches about angels and demons and demon possession and believers. So let's start at point one. This is just going to be a very uh, superficial look at demonism. We don't have time to do an in-depth study at this point or we'll never get through the Gospel of John. Point number one, God originally created an innumerable army of rational spirit beings which were called angels. Now the Greek word is angelos. A-N-G. Whenever you have a double gamma, you always have an It's pronounced like N-G. E-L-O-S. And it means messenger. As does the Hebrew equivalent. Means messenger. So God originally created this innumerable army of rational spirit beings. He created the entire host of angels. We don't know their exact number. In Revelation we're told there are myriads upon myriads. So there are probably millions if not billions of angels. And He created them instantaneously and simultaneously. And there were different orders of angels. There are cherubs. There are seraphs. And there are various ministering angels, including guardian angels and others that have different responsibilities, such as those related to uh, meteorology and other things like that, as indicated in, in Revelation. Now, at some unknown time in the past, God created the angels first, and then according to Job chapter 38, 
verses 6 and 7, He creates the universe. So point number one, God creates the angels simultaneously. They are an innumerable army of rational spirit beings. And then secondly, all after He creates the angels, He then created their habitation, the universe. Now, the universe at that time looked different from the universe now. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the term heavens and the earth in Hebrew is what we would mean by universe. There's no such equivalent in Hebrew. You just have the expanse, the heavens and the earth. That's how Jews would relate to it. So all we know is the universe, the heavens is the, is a, is the space, and then you have one planet, earth. We don't know what else it was like, but we do know that this was the realm in which the angels operated and then sometime, at some time in the uh, undesignated past, the highest of all the angels named Lucifer sins against God. This is found in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. So this is point three. The highest of all the angels was named Lucifer. And when Lucifer fell, when he sinned, he became the adversary of God and challenged God's authority to rule the universe. This is found in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 and Ezekiel 28:11 through 19. Now at that point the universe goes under judgment. Now when God created all the angels and Lucifer fell, then there was a decision making time for the angels. We don't know how long this time period lasted, but the issue was would they follow Satan or not? They had one a one-time decision. If they chose to follow Lucifer in his fall, then that would seal their doom for all eternity. That was the only option they had for redemption. And we know from Revelation that one-third of the angels followed Satan in his revolt against God. Now, this one-third of the angels who followed Satan in his revolt are referred to as demons, also as fallen angels. Now, these can further be classified into two groups. So let's get back to our points. Point number three, the highest of all the angels was named Lucifer. Point number four, one-third of all the angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion. The only redemptive solution the angels had was the choice of allegiance to God. So if they made a decision to follow Lucifer, then that sealed their doom for all eternity. Point number five, those who followed Satan are called demons. There are two classifications of demons. Those that are imprisoned in Tartarus right now, and those that are operational. Now the imprisoned demons are those that cohabited with the daughters of men in Genesis 6.3, where it says the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and took them as their wives. The term sons of God in the Hebrew is B'nai Elohim, and that term is used throughout the Old Testament as a technical term for angelic beings. In the New Testament, a son of God is related to the adoption that takes place for the believer at the point of salvation. But the term son of God... Literally, sons of God, plural sons, B'nai, is a technical term in the Old Testament for any angelic creature, fallen or holy. Those who left their first estate, according to uh, 1 Peter 3, 
are imprisoned in Tartarus and they are not released until partway into the tribulation. Then there's another group that are operational. These we call demons and there are times when they can possess, take possession of human bodies. So point number five was those who followed Satan are called demons. There are two classifications of demons, imprisoned demons and active demons. And the the ones who are operational today are Satan's henchmen who carry out his desire to control the earth. They function as his messengers because Satan is not omniscient, he is not omnipotent, and he is not omnipresent. In fact, Satan spends most of his time before the throne of God accusing believers and relying upon his chain of command to carry out his wishes in human history and to try to influence human history. So that brings us to point six. Demons are involved in blinding the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4. 4. Demons are involved in blinding the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. They're involved in influencing mankind through false doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.1. And they're involved in counterfeiting the truth, 2 Corinthians 11.14-15. to and there we learn that they masquerade as angels or ministers of righteousness. So they're involved in counterfeiting the truth, communicating false doctrine to man, and blinding unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. The, this whole process of influencing man through false doctrine is what is called demon influence. So point number seven, let's define demon influence. Demon influence is distinct from demon possession. Demon influence means that demons are influencing the thinking of mankind through various counterfeit doctrines. Demon influence means demons are seeking to influence the thinking of man, I want to add this, from an external vantage point. This is critical. It's from outside, an external vantage point. Demon possession, on the other hand, means that a demon takes up residence within the soul of a person, within the body, influencing the soul from within the body. So it is a demon possession is an internal vantage point. Now that I have said that, let me introduce you to the controversy that tends to rage today. The Greek word that is normally translated demon possession is the participle, present, passive participle, daimonizomai. Now, this is the root meaning demon. Because it is a Passive, it indicates that the subject is acted upon or the subject receives the action. So, what has happened is that people are looking at this word and defining it etymologically. That means, etymologically means you're breaking it down according to its roots and its basic parts of speech 
and that's it. You're not defining it by usage. Now, every word means what it means by usage, not just by etymology. This is what's called an etymological fallacy. So it will be translated as to be acted upon by a demon. And then, in my experience, you always have somebody somewhat self-righteously say, well, the Bible never talks about demon possession. Never uses that terminology anywhere in the Greek. It only talks about being acted upon by a demon. Now, let me show you why that is false, because this is the root of a lot of misinformation today, and you get a lot of people getting all concerned, a lot of Christians getting all concerned that they're being chased around by the devil or they might be demon-possessed and they need to have some sort of deliverance. And so this has given rise to all sorts of deliverance ministries. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 33. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 4.33 There was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Now the Greek here uses a different phrase than diamonizomai. See, what we have to do is look how these words are used in context. And here we have the phrase echon daimonion. E-C-H-O-N, which is a participle form of echo, to have and to hold. The Greek word is looks like it's E-C-H-O and then daimonion. This is the same phrase that the Pharisees used in their accusation of Jesus in John 8. You have a demon. And it means to be demon-possessed, and it's accurately translated as such in Luke 4.33. There was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Look at Jesus' response, verse 35. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Now, it's important to look at the verb there. In the Greek, it looks like this. Ex erkomai. This is a compound word. Erkomai means to come. Ex means to come out of. If you have the preposition ace, it means to go into. These are the words that are used over and again in these demon possession stories. So if you are to come out, then that implies that you must be in. Right? That's what we're talking about here. Ace erkomai is used a number of different ways in classical Greek, but in every case it's describing someone or something that goes from outside to inside. It is used in drama to refer to the movement of the Greek chorus from offstage to onstage. They're going from outside the action to inside the action. 
It's used in uh, commercial accounts to refer to the movement of money from outside an account to inside an account. It's used of emotion from being outside a person to now being inside the person, from a thought from being outside a person to now being inside the mentality. So it always has this idea, ace erkamai always has this idea of something being inside of something. So when we look at these terms, like echon daimonion, which may be a little vague, we can look at more precise terminology within the story to find out just exactly what it means. So Jesus says, you have to come out. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he what? He came out of him without doing him any harm. So from this we see that demon possession is a demon taking up residence inside the body of someone. Now turn over a couple of other chapters to Luke chapter 8, verse 27. Luke 8:27 And when he had come out onto the land he was met this is talking about Jesus he was met by a certain man from the city this is in the country of the Gerasenes a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons. Now the Greek word here is the word I refer to first of all, daimonizomai. It's the verb form. He was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He was not living in a house but in the tombs. He's out in the graveyard outside of town. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now, this is the demon speaking through Him. This is not the man. This is the demon who is controlling the vocal cords of the person being possessed and is speaking to Jesus. What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And then we have our explanation in verse 29. Because He had been commanding, that is, Jesus had been commanding the unclean spirit to come, what? Out of the man. Ex erkamai out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. So we see how the demon, from his residence inside the body of the person, gave him almost a supernatural strength. He imitated somebody who was crazy, but this is not just some... um, archaic way of looking at mental illness before we were... Uh, given the brilliant insights of Freud. This is talking about actual demon possession. There, the Bible takes, the, takes it literally that there are demons. Jesus treated, it, treated them as existing creatures and that demon possession was real and possible. So here we say, commands the demon to come out, verse 30, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had what? entered him. And here we have our other word, ace erkamai, to go into. 
For many demons had entered him, and they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. So Jesus cast the demons out, and the demons came out of the man, ex erkamai and entered the swine, ace erkamai Now, one other thing, it's not in this passage, and I don't want to go through every passage this morning on demon possession, but the command that Jesus uses when he says to come out is the term, or when he says Jesus cast out a demon, is the verb ek balo. Now, the word that is used for this activity by most people is the word from the Greek, hex or kizo, which looks like ex or kizo, E-X-H-O-R-K-I-Z-O, which is where we get our word exorcist. But Jesus never, ever performed an exorcism. Never. Why do I say that? Because the only time the Greek New Testament uses the word exorcist is when some pagan is trying to cast out a demon with magic. This word is never used of Jesus or the disciples when they are casting out a demon by the power of God. Exorcism is the pagan concept of casting out a demon through magical incantations. You see it with the seven sons of Sceva over in, I think it's in Acts 17, where they are casting out demons and they're the, they're the Jewish exorcists. But Jesus casts out demons and it just takes a command and they must submit to His authority. Now when we look at all of this, what we realize is that demons are very real Their influence is very real, and that people can indeed be demon-possessed, but Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Christians cannot be demon-possessed for a number of reasons. The strongest argument of which is that because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were regenerated at the moment of salvation. Along with regeneration, there were 38 other irrevocable things that God did for you at the moment of salvation, including the fact that God the Holy Spirit took up residence inside your body. You have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit who converts your body into a temple for the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have not only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of God the Father. All three members of the Trinity take up residence in the body of the believer, which is a temple unto God. And so the demon cannot come in, demons cannot come in and take up residence in the body of believers. That's the first line of reasoning. The second line of reasoning has been, some people have said, well, that's just an argument from silence. Well, it's a silence that speaks volumes. The claim of the New Testament is, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Everything we need for life and godliness. That would at least, I would think, mean that if demon possession were a problem for believers, we would be told how to solve the problem. And yet, demon possession is never, never 
Let me say it one more time. It's never mentioned in the New Testament epistles. So if demon possession is an expected problem for believers, then why isn't it mentioned? It's not a problem. It doesn't need to be addressed. The epistles were written to address believers on how to handle every issue in the spiritual life. So if something is left out, then it's not a problem. So we're not told to take Satan captive. We're not told to rebuke Satan. We're not told to kick the devil out of church. We're not told to take any aggressive action against the devil at all in the New Testament. In fact, the word that is used over and over again in relation to Satan and demons is the Greek word antistemi. A-N-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. That we are to take a stand against the devil. We are to resist the devil and he will flee from you. The promise is, the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So because the Holy Spirit indwells us and he is greater than Satan, we don't have to worry about demon possession. But what we are to do is not to take aggressive action. And this verb, me means to take up a defensive posture. It is not a position of aggression or going on the offense militarily. It is a military word for taking a defensive position. And the reason is that we have no idea what is going on in the angelic realm. We can't see demons. We can't see angels. We have no idea what's going on around us. I mean, if God opened our eyes, we would be amazed to see what was going on around us. But we do not have the frame of reference, either experientially experientially or rationally, to know all that's going on around us. And so it's very easy for us to be deceived because we're basically blindfolded. So God says, take a defensive position, hold your ground by relying upon the Word of God. So who's going to take the defense? I mean, who's going to take the offense? The offense is taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who defends us and goes on the offensive. So we're here, and we set out our defensive perimeter with the Word of God. And we put on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6, which is all defensive. Somebody will say, well, wait a minute. We're to take up the sword of the Spirit of the Lord, which is the Word of God. Yes, but how do we use that? Do we use that as an offensive weapon, or do we use it as a defensive weapon? And the model for that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ in His temptations in the wilderness. When the Lord went into the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, went into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan, and there are three temptations. I don't have time to go into
time Satan tempted the Lord with something, how did the Lord respond? Did he go out and bash the devil on the head? No, he didn't. He says, Thus says the Lord, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan would thrust and the Lord would parry. That's a defensive move. He parries with the Word of God. So he has the Word of God and he uses it in a defensive manner, not in an offensive manner. So in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, we see the example of how to use the Word of God in this defensive posture. And then, we're being attacked here from demons. We can't see. We don't know exactly what they're doing or how they're doing it. But it's up to the Lord to hit them on the flank. And our responsibility is to do what happened in the Old Testament illustration when the Amalekites were fighting the Jews as they were coming out of Egypt. And Moses gave the command, stand still. And when that Hebrew word, stand still, is translated into Greek, what word do you think it is? Anthistemi. Stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Don't go into aggressive activity against Satan because you're going to get clobbered in your spiritual life because you don't have a clue what's going on in the angelic realm. And so the issue for the believer is to take a defensive posture in relationship to Satan and the demons, but we are to take an offensive posture in two directions. Number one, against the sin nature, against the flesh. We take offensive action by putting to death the deeds of the flesh because that involves our own sin nature. Okay, putting to death the sin nature and the deeds of the sin nature, number one. And we take aggressive action against the thinking of the world system, both of which take place within our mentality. That's where the battle for the spiritual life takes place is in the mentality of the believer. Okay, we've taken a little aside now just to briefly cover what the Scriptures teach about demons and angels so that we can have a little background here. This is not just some sort of mythology. There is something very real to demon possession. And the Jews accused Jesus of having a demon and carrying out His work in the power of Satan. Jesus answers in verse 49, I do not have a demon... But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Notice how Jesus comes right back to looking at their life. In the previous section, we saw that He challenged the Jews, if you can bring a charge against me, go ahead and do it. And, of course, they couldn't do it. And He is contrasting the fact that their life, their desire to murder Him, dishonors God. And He is about His Father's work, and He is honoring the Father. So we see this contrast. Jesus says, I do not have a demon. I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. But there is one there is one who, who seeks and judges. And here, of course, he's referring to the fact that there, to God the Father and that eventually there will be judgment. Jesus said that in regard to His first advent, He did not come to judge. But he is reminding them that ultimately there will be judgment and, and that will be decided. And the issue then is what they, they do in relationship to Jesus Christ, whether they accept Him as Savior or not. Verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, 
he shall never see death. Now they are very confused at this point. They want to translate death as physical death. But Jesus is not talking about physical death. He's talking about the second death, which is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. He says, if anyone keeps my word, what is his word? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If anyone obeys his command to accept him as a savior, then they will not see the second death. But the Jews are totally confused. Look at how they respond in verse 52. Very literal. Now we know that you have, now we know that you have a demon. Why? Abraham died and the prophets also. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Notice how they changed his words. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. They said, taste of death. And in the rabbinical writings and in the idiom of, of the day, taste of death was a Jewish term for physical death. When somebody died, they said they tasted death. So here they're changing his words and they say, you just said if anyone keeps my word, he will never die physically. Well, Abraham's dead physically and the prophets are dead physically. So you are so divorced from reality, Jesus, that you must have a demon. Verse 53. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? See, they're so caught up in thinking physical death that they miss the point. They cannot understand the things that he is saying. This is the point Jesus, John is making throughout this whole section. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness. And John is giving us all of these illustrations from the Pharisees to show how they are continually walking in darkness. Verse 44, Jesus said, You do not stand in the truth, and there's no truth in you. You're lying. You're in darkness. They can't even understand the truth. So Jesus answers in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Now you're claiming, this is his argument, you're claiming to follow God. You're claiming to honor God. But if you honored God, you would honor me. I don't glorify myself. I'm here to glorify God. But you don't glorify God. You're glorifying yourself. You don't even know who God is. Verse 55. I want you to notice the crescendo in this confrontation in the next four verses. And you have not come to know Him. You are ignorant of God. You may know the Mosaic Law backwards and forwards. You may pray seven times a day and may go to temple three times a day, but you don't know God. You're ignorant of God. You have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His Word. Em emphasis, you don't keep His Word. And then He says, your, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham back here, because of the revelation of God to him, anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And so because of the revelation that God had given to Abraham, Abraham anticipated the coming of the Messiah and rejoiced to see that fulfilled. He anticipated it. 
Hebrews 11 says that he was looking forward to, to the, looking to a city that was built without hands. And now the Jews react and says, "Look, you're not even 50 years of age. Have you seen Abraham? You know, Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. How can you claim to have seen Abraham?" And then Jesus really punches him right between the eyes in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Look at their response. Their response tells you what Jesus said. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw in there in the temple. It's still under construction. They immediately just start looking on the ground for bricks, whatever they can to throw at him. And in the midst of the confusion, Jesus walks off. Why were they going to stone him? Because they, they understood that he claimed to be God. Not like modern liberals and modern man who says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus was just a good man. They knew that Jesus claimed to be God. Why did they know that? Well, you have to look at the Greek text here. When he says, before Abraham was, he uses the Greek verb, genomai. There are two verbs translated to be or to become in Greek. The first is genomai. The second is ami. Now, genomai means to come into existence. A me can indicate continuous existence. This is why the name of God was translated, the Old Testament term was Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, I am that I am, and so it was translated and brought over into Greek as ego, the first person personal pronoun, I, and a me, E-I-M-I, I am. So Jesus says, before Abraham came into existence, I continually existed. He is claiming eternal life, which only God has. So he is claiming to have been alive with Abraham, to be the God of Abraham, And so they pick up stones to stone him. See, Jesus doesn't leave us, and he didn't leave them, with any options. You cannot claim that Jesus was just a good man, a moral teacher, or a religious innovator. Jesus made incredible claims, and we have seen them in almost every chapter, that he claims to be full deity. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the one that the Old Testament prophesied and the fulfillment of all those prophesied, and he claimed to go to the cross to die as our substitute, that he paid the complete penalty for all of our sins. So the issue is, is he who he claimed to be or not? If he was who he claimed to be, then he is worthy of all honor and praise and worship. If he was not who he claimed to be, then he wasn't a good man. He was the greatest deceiver and liar of all of human history. And so when you get involved in a conversation sometime and you're witnessing to somebody and they seek to make this claim that, well, Jesus was just a good man, what you need to be able to do is look at these passages, have them underlined in your Bible so you can go to them and show who Jesus claimed to be. Now, it leaves them with one alternative. And I've heard a few people say this, and if they take this, it just shows their ignorance. They say, well... 
The disciples lied. That's not what he claimed to be. This is, this is just a lie. They lied. Jesus never claimed to be that. The, the apostles just fabricated it. But that flies in the face of all historical evidence. See, the old liberals back a hundred years ago tried to post-date the New Testament to 150, 200 A.D., 100, 150 years after all the apostles died. But there's so much archaeological evidence now that even some of the most liberal theologians back about 15 or 20 years ago had to admit that the New Testament was written when conservatives had said it was written all along, and that is not too long after the events they portray, so that there were many eyewitnesses still alive. You couldn't get away with a fraud. You couldn't pull off a hoax because there were too many people alive who knew the truth. So you can't get away with claiming that the the disciples lied or this is a misrepresentation. It doesn't fit the evidence. It's clear. This is why John said, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in His name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word, to understand the, the dynamics of what was going on here as Jesus was revealing to the Pharisees and to the Jews who He was as the promised Messiah, as the Son of God, He claimed full deity and only His full deity, uh, undiminished deity and true humanity, united forever in one person. Could He go to the cross, qualified to die as a man, as our substitute, a perfect man, so that He could pay the penalty for all of our sins? Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without a certainty of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would know now that the Bible is clear, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He paid the penalty for all the sins of humanity throughout all the centuries. There is no sin left unpaid for. So the issue is not your sin. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ. Whether or not you accept the free gift of eternal salvation, faith alone, in Christ alone. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray that you would help us to think and contemplate on these things and see how they relate to our spiritual life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.